a Bible, please open Philippians 3, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 13. So Philippians 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the price prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, <laughs> that's silly. Um, my name's Ed, as Flo mentioned. I'm the director of worship here at Reality Church. Um, if you're new or you're visiting, you're so welcome. We love having visitors here. Hopefully, you'd have met someone with a lovely blue shirt. Um, and if you want to know more about Reality Church, go speak to them. Um, Usually I do have my guitar up with me when I'm here, and so I'm used to singing more than speaking. Uh, but today, I have the honour of continuing our series looking through the book of Philippians. Um, but before we start, would you like to join me in prayer? Um, yes, Father, we thank you that there is nothing greater, nothing more beautiful than coming to know you. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we unpack the words um, of your scriptures this morning, Lord, would you be um, putting the truths of them so deep within our hearts? Would we know what it means to live after you, to um, look more like Jesus, to know that, to know more of your surpassing worth and beauty? And Jesus, we pray for this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, seeing as we are a few weeks into this series, I thought I'd um, just begin with a brief overview of the greatest story of Philippians so far. Um, it's not a pop quiz, but um, I think hopefully it will help set the context of today's sermon and um, help us as we pursue more about uh, this uh, unbelievably joyful book. 
Philippi was a city located in like northern Macedonia, well, northern Greece, kind of on the Aegean Sea. And it was a relatively wealthy and prominent Roman colony. The story of its kind of inception um, in the Christian world is found in Acts 16. Um, but it's quite curious to notice the similarities between London and Philippi. Now, you might think, what on earth does a first century Roman colony have to do with uh, 21st century Western metropolis, but both were places of political and cultural and economic influence. And so, as a result, it's quite interesting to see how Paul was wanting to speak to the Philippian church. I think we can actually learn from Paul's desire to teach the Philippian church about life in the city, life in a wealthy city, life in an influential city. We can learn lessons for us today. Philippians is described as um, the happiest letter in the New Testament. Um, it has four quite short chapters. You could probably read it in 20 minutes. But repeatedly, Paul uses words like rejoice and be glad. Um, joy comes up a number of number of times. So the letter of Philippians, the big overview, is a good reminder for Christians that we are called to be joyful people, that a fundamental part of our characteristic, our disposition, is to be joyful but what makes this letter so striking is that whilst penning this most joyful letter, Paul was himself in chains. He was facing deep persecution uh, for preaching and teaching the name of Jesus. Now, Paul was once a most successful man. Um, he would have at one time slept in a comfy spare to have eaten the nicest food. Uh, fortune and fame would have kind of been promised towards him. Paul had every ambition and he had every means and ability to achieve those things. But here, Paul is writing in a cold and dirty Roman cell about a true and sincere joy. Now, a question really is, where did this joy come from? How is it, Paul, that despite this really dire circumstance you find yourself in, how is it you are able to be so joyful? Well, it's, and I think this passage kind of talks and opens this up. It's because Paul had come to know Jesus. And fundamentally, knowing Jesus had transformed, it changed, it altered Paul's life. And as we unpack chapter 3, and we'll be exploring what it means to know Jesus. How did Paul realise, how did Paul actualise what knowing Jesus looked like in his life? And the two things that were kind of um, apparent to me as I was preparing, and hopefully that we'll focus on today, is that firstly, knowing Jesus redirects our boasting. And secondly, knowing Jesus reshapes our desires and what we pursue. So the first point, um, knowing Jesus redirects your boasting. I, I would like to kind of ask a question, what do you boast about or what is boasting? You may think it's uh, only a thing that little children are told not to do. Um, but the fact of the matter is we all boast, we all boast all the time. We just really can't help it as part of our human disposition. Um, the agnostic author David Foster Wallace says, we all worship something. Your only choice is what you worship or really who you worship. But just as a little example, if I boast about FC Bournemouth, the uh, Premier League football team, um, then I've connected my joy to them somehow. So when they win, I celebrate and I'm happy. And when they lose, I get all downcast and I'm sad. At some level in that area, I've connected my identity to Bournemouth. And we all do that all the time. It might be your job, it might be your relationship, it might be your religion, it might be the fact that you're a very good person. But Paul in this passage in Philippians 3 is 
showing us the only kind of boasting that actually is okay, the only kind of boasting that actually works, the only kind of boasting that is sufficient. Um, so look with me at verse 2. Um, Paul kind of comes out all guns blazing. Uh, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So after his introductory command to rejoice in the Lord, there we have that joyful theme again. Paul issues this very staunch, very hard-hitting warning to the Philippian church to watch out for, to be on guard against, to look out for a group of opponents. Um, our English translations often miss this, but he alliterates here. He says, in effect, beware, beware, beware. But those opponents, who were they? Well, it's likely they were a group of Jewish Christians um, known as the Judaizers. They kind of crop up in the, some of Acts and Galatians. They feature quite prominent. Um, but their primary message, their primary teaching was that Jesus wasn't enough. They believed in Jesus. They thought, well, you need to know Jesus. But after you come to know and believe in Jesus, you need to do something. You could say they kind of preached a Jesus plus something message. And the something that they demanded was adherence to the Old Testament law, um, especially in regards to some of its rituals or practices like the food laws or circumcision, hence the mutilators of the flesh in the passage. But it's actually, I think, really important for us to note that these people weren't making their appeal to the Philippian church on the basis of some lesser commitment. Actually, their kind of advertisement, their kind of boasting was Actually, we're really serious about this. We're really zealous. We're the people who really follow God. And so those people who would have been tempted to um, go into the Judaizing camp, they'd have likewise been people who are very hungry to know God. People who are very hungry to want to know him more, to learn the way to salvation. But it's against the teaching that Jesus isn't enough that Paul goes absolutely ballistic against. You see, when the central truth of the gospel is ever threatened, Paul never leaves any quarter. He never minces his words. He knew better than anyone else that Jesus plus something amounted to nothing. And then conversely, Jesus plus nothing is everything. But Paul goes on to give a reason for why he knows this better than anyone else. He lists this multitude of things that he's accomplished and what they have achieved for him. Uh, it's quite funny. It's effectively like Paul is writing his spiritual CV. Um, you've all probably written a CV or resume. You're in London, probably doing quite a successful job. You know what it's like to put your greatest achievements, the projects you've managed, the teams, the DOV expeditions you've gone on. This is like Paul's greatest achievement. It's his hit list. And undoubtedly, it's very, very impressive. Um, but because it's kind of a first century text, um, I think it might be quite helpful for us to unpack it. So firstly, uh, Paul is boasting that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Um, that is to say that the thing that the Judaizers were trying to convince the Philippian church to do, which is to become circumcised now that you believe in God, Paul is saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the exact day where the Old Testament told me to do it. His next thing is saying that I was born of the people of Israel. That is God's first initial covenant community, the nation that was set apart by God for the glory of God to make God's blessing known among the nations. 
Thirdly, he says that he was born into a most impressive tribe within that nation. So the tribe of Benjamin um, is the tribe where Israel's first king came from. It's probably where Paul gets his name, where it was Saul, gets his name from, King Saul. It's also Benjamin was the only tribe to stay faithful to Judah during the time of the two kingdoms. And then being a Hebrew of Hebrew refers to the fact that he spoke the ancient language of the Jewish people. He was born into the right customs, to the right nation, to the right tribe, and to the right parents. And just quickly, for good and for bad reasons, we're not as concerned about where we've come from or who we are anymore. Um, But make no mistake, in Paul's day and age, this would have been the biggest form of boasting who your dad is, who your family is, who your heritage is from. But the next list, I think, will feel a bit more comfortable and a bit more at home. It's Paul's personal achievements. These are the things that Paul has accomplished through his own toil, his own labour, his own hard work. So fifthly, Paul was a Pharisee. That means he was part of the most devout, the most religious, the strictest sect of Israel's nation. He notes his incomparable zeal. He didn't just know things about God. He was emotionally all in. He really believed them. And then Paul tops off this incredible list with the most remarkable claim of them all that according to the righteousness that comes from the law, he was, in fact, blameless or faultless. Now, it's actually quite tricky to know what Paul really means. Um, If you'd like to know some debates about what Paul means by being blameless according to the law, come find me afterwards. But the point here is really quite clear, isn't it? Paul has the most decorated, the most impressive, the greatest spiritual CV you could ever read, ever listen to. If he was applying for a job at your firm, you'd give him a stelling like yes. He had the fame, the renown, the respect of his colleagues, his friends, random people he'd bump into on the street. He would have had, as I said earlier, money, luxury, respect, all things given to him. And in fact, put upon him saying, Paul, you're amazing. Can you imagine that affirmation he'd have got from the leaders, from his peers? Spiritually and socially, Paul was a VIP, a very important person. But this makes his statement next really striking. Because he says, all those amazing things that I once considered the gain to me, I've added them up onto the gain side of the column, and I've realised they've amounted to absolutely nothing. He's saying, in effect, I thought I was once a spiritual billionaire, but I've come to see that I was actually spiritually bankrupt. But this, of course, begs that question, what happened? Well, you can read this story in Acts 9. One day, as Paul was journeying towards Damascus in order to continue his zealous persecution of the church, he met the risen Lord Jesus, the one who he'd been persecuting all these years. And coming to know Jesus flipped Paul's life upside down, or rather, wrong side right. And it's... Fresh Prince of Bella, his life got flipped and upside down. <laughs> but coming to know Jesus, coming to see Jesus, in that moment as he beheld that unyielding, unending beauty of God, he realised that all the things that he'd been doing, all the works that he'd been striving after, all those things that he'd been trying to do in order to curry favour and blessing from God were at best dull and at their worst detestable. You see, Paul had once seen them as a ground of confidence for his salvation. They were, in a sense, a reason why God should let him into heaven, why God should love him. 
But Paul saw on that road to Damascus that he had in fact been building his house not upon a solid rock, but upon some sinking sand. But isn't that just so revealing of our human hearts? We love, love, love to build our own houses. Really, they're towers. Um, We like to build them as tall as possible, especially as long as they're taller than the people who are standing beside us. And we live in a society of comparison and pride. London is especially good at perpetuating this. Here, your value as a person, I wonder if you've ever felt like this, your value as a person is based on your relationship status, your attractiveness, your intelligence, your salary, what is your job title, how many friends do you have, how many people follow you on Instagram. These are the cultural waters that we swim in and naturally we very quickly bring that into how we perceive God or how we think God perceives us. If, we, if there was a LinkedIn account for us to boast about our spiritual achievements, we'd all be obsessed over it. But as a, and I just want to unpack this, as a little personal example, and it's quite petty, but I think it's really revealing. Um, before I came to work here at Reality Church, I worked as an au pair, which is like a live-in nanny in Cambridge. Um, and what was supposed to be two to three months turned into about a year. And I have to confess, I uh, I feared that dreaded question you get when you meet someone new. The, so what do you do question? Um, and I dreaded it because, honestly, the work that I was doing didn't seem impressive. I didn't think I was being successful in the eyes of the world. And I really felt quite insecure about having to share the fact that I wasn't being successful in the way that you may perceive me to be. I think somehow and very easily, subconsciously, I had wrapped up my perception of how God sees me into how I thought thought of myself and how I thought others could perceive me. But it was later on during that year that by his grace I came to see that firstly there was real value in the work that I was doing. I was helping to raise four boys. And secondly, very importantly, my salvation nor God's love for me is ever bound up in my job title. No, I could trust that God loves me because while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. When I was an enemy of God, He brought me in to become his friend. When I was a child of wrath, he made me a child of the living God. That year, I saw more deeply the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I just want to nuance this, because I think it is really important. Paul in this section isn't rejecting the bad works of the flesh. He's not rejecting saying, oh, the bad things that I was doing, they're all worthless. He's actually saying that the good things that I was doing, I've come to realise, are worthless. He says that elsewhere in the New Testament, in Romans and Corinthians, he actually boasts about being a Jew. He says, us Jewish people were given the lively oracles of God. He is happy, he is proud about his Jewish heritage, but he's rejecting those good things here, not on the basis that they're bad in themselves, but on the basis when they become a ground for your boasting in. There most certainly is a place for your Christian service and your Christian worship. We aren't commanded to sit back and relax and let the world kind of pass us by. We are called to pursue, to engage, to debate, to run after God with all our hearts. We're called to love those and serve those around us, to stand firm for the gospel. But please don't ever put the cart before the horse. Worship is central to the Christian life. But don't ever mistake it for a work that carries favour with God. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. 
And friends, when we come to know Jesus, we realise that we have found everything that we have ever needed. And so more than boasting in what you can do, boast in what Jesus has accomplished, how he, by the power of his word, he created and sustains the cosmos, how he has been at work throughout all history, reconciling this universe back to himself. Boast of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Boast about how he overcame death, he defeated sin, he defeated Satan, boasted him. There's nothing, no one more worthy of your praise and of your acclamation. And seeing that is what changed Paul's life. And God wants to change yours. He wants to be known by you. God wants to know you. And there's always, fundamentally, there's always more of him to know. You may have been journeying with the Lord for a short while or a long while, but there's always more of God to know. But this moves us to our second point. So after our uh, boasting is redirected, knowing Jesus reshapes our desires. So if you'd look with me again at the text from verse 8. So what is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them as garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. So after Paul had met Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life had changed, he no longer wanted to boast in who he was but in who Jesus is. He no longer wanted to seek his own glory but he wanted to seek the Lord's glory. He no longer wanted to seek his own righteousness but he wanted the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And he considers all the old things as, um, it says here, garbage in the New International Version, the Greek word there is like a colloquial term for dung. It's a vulgar term for... Yes. <laughs> he considers them that in order that he may gain Christ. Paul wants to gain, to know, to be found in, to receive from, to participate in. Paul wants to know more and more of Jesus. That is his great ambition. You see, Paul, on that road to Damascus, realised that losing all worldly things didn't matter as long as he could come to know the surpassing worth of Jesus. His heart, his mind, his soul had been so caught up, so captured by the beauty and the splendor of Jesus. And now, can you imagine the freedom and contentment that would bring you in your life? As an infant, the hymn writer Fanny Crosby was blinded due to the negligence of a man claiming that he had medical knowledge. Yet, as an eight-year-old, as an eight-year-old, she expressed her resolve to be content despite total blindness. Um, she said, oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. Then one day, a few years later, while reflecting on what it meant to be truly content, Fanny remarked, it meant realizing that God has provided everything that I need for my present happiness. you believe that? He has. And see, her trust in God meant that when she was then asked um, about what had happened to her as an infant, her reply was, if I could meet the man, that is, the person who had blinded her, 
I would tell him that he unwittingly did me the greatest kindness in the world. And then similarly, shortly before her death, she shared, I believe that the greatest blessing the Creator has ever bestowed on me was when he permitted my external vision to be closed. The loss of sight was no loss to me. And a hymn that she wrote is called Take the World But Give Me Jesus. Take the world but give me Jesus, all its joys their button name, but his love abideth forever through eternal years the same. Take the world but give me Jesus, the sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Saviour watching over me, I can sing though billows roll. Take the world but give me Jesus. It's in his cross my trust shall be. Till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I will see. Coming to know Jesus will change everything. It will completely transform what you desire most in your life. What is your first desire? Is it that job promotion? Is it to receive recognition from your colleagues, your boss, your peers? Is it to be seen as successful in the eyes of the world around you? What do you want more than anything else? Are you able to say with Fanny, take this world, but just give me Jesus? Would you believe her when she says, the sweetest comfort of my soul? But understanding the truth of those words is a lifelong pursuit. Indeed, it will take your life. Jesus says, if anyone is to come after me, let him first deny himself, pick up his cross, then follow me. My dear friends, being a follower of Jesus probably won't look pretty, especially in a world that wants to reject and rebel against God. It may involve persecution and pain, but Paul makes that very clear in verse 10. See, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? Paul doesn't say, I want to know the power of the resurrection in order that I may avoid suffering. Instead, he writes that knowing the power of the resurrection means participating in the suffering. In previous weeks, we've talked about how Paul brings joy and sorrow together, weeping and dancing. He knew better than anyone else that we all have our crosses to bear. You will all have those areas where you must deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow after Jesus. But do that knowing that first he denied himself, he bore that old rugged cross for you, and he has overcome the grave and that Jesus is now alive and he is seated at the right hand of God. You see, we know the end from the beginning and that gives us hope in the today. And our ability to endure is based on our knowledge of the power of the resurrection. There's another, I won't give you the full um, chorus, but it's another song. I'm a worship director, it's my job. (laughs) Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future that life is worth the living just because he lives. Death is the way to victory. The cross is the way to life. Now, is your desire to know Jesus above everything else? Is it to love him, to serve him, regardless of what the cost may be? Is coming to know Jesus your greatest ambition? He wants to know you. He wants to know you. He wants to know you as a friend, as a child. And he's welcomed you to know him as a father, as a saviour, as a brother. I think there's also, just in the few moments we have left, there's another trap we can fall prone, uh, we can 
fall into easily. You see, sometimes our faith or our belief can become a knowing about as opposed to a knowing of. It can become this sort of amassing of facts and answers. You may be able to defend historic Christian creeds. You may be able to answer what the Trinity is or the Incarnation. You may be able to quote large portions of Scripture. And if you can, that's amazing. I don't want to discourage you from that. But it's not enough. The theologian Alistair McGrath, who was recently the Emeritus Professor of Theology at Oxford, was once aware that his faith had become cerebral and clinical and stale. And as he went to study, he wrote this. I knew I had to break from that old, cold rationalism of my early faith. But how? And then he continues. Recycling one day to Whittam Woods, I found a hill on which I could look and see Oxford's famous dreaming spires. And having prayed to ask God for his help to sort me out, I opened up my Bible and began reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. That's where we've been today. And as I was contemplating Paul's declaration that I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, reading and rereading those words, I began to see my problem. You see, I thought that spiritual knowledge or spiritual maturity was about gaining information. I'd read commentaries and theologies, I'd been to countless Bible studies, but none of that had improved the quality of my faith. It hadn't, get, it hadn't helped me get to know God better. I was like someone who had read about France but had never visited it, about falling in love but had never experienced it. And what spoke most powerfully to me then was Paul's distinction between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Many readers will no doubt find this blindingly obvious. But everyone has to discover it for themselves. Here in Philippians, Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Nothing less. Continually his plea is that he would gain more to know Christ, to know Christ, to know Christ. And then a couple of years later, his last letter in 2 Timothy, he writes, I know whom I have believed as he's about to go and face his death, which was beheading. He writes, I know whom I have believed. And his charge is simply for us to know Jesus, to come to know him, to not be content with just paddling in the pools of the shallows, but to dive right into the depth. You see, there is always more of Jesus to know there's more of him to discover Paul was obsessed always moving further up and further into Jesus and it transformed it changed his life and he saw it as being so much better than the life that he was living beforehand but really that does leave the question what about you God wants to know you God wants you to boast in him God wants you to delight in knowing him. God has made himself fully and truly known through Jesus. And it's through his work of the cross that Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled. Back to the one, the only one, who brings rest to our restless hearts. He has provided everything. He has laid the table, as it were, his provide the food, he's got the drinks, he's sent the carriages, he's even given you the garments to wear. 
You just need to come. Come today. What is the reason to wait? How amazing would it be that today's testimony would be that I saw the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let me pray. Um, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for his work, his blood, his doings, his intercessions. Lord, I pray that we would be people who rest in him and him alone. And Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that enables us to work and to live for your glory. But ultimately, Lord, would our eyes be always focused on you, focused on knowing you, focused on loving you more. Would every day we wake up loving you a little more deeply, seeing you a little more clearly, boasting in you a little more um, joyfully. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,